My style of photography, I mean, I would like it to be seen as being quite intimate and have a certain kind of emotional quality to it. I danced on my balcony by myself and it was extraordinarily liberating and exhilarating. There is some magic in Middle Eastern or specifically in Persian hospitality. <laughs> Since we launched Confect Magazine and its audio sister Confect Corner, we've been inundated with missives from people who felt they found a title that chimes with their values and interests. Whether that's our take on wine and viticulture, our elegant but wearable fashion tips, or an interest in long-form reportage. Thank you for your support. Launching a publication in these trying times has been challenging to say the least. After a long, taxing winter, spring is finally here and we can step out in light jackets for a stroll in the pale sunshine. It's a time of plans and projects, blossom on the trees and literally and figuratively green shoots. We've just sent the second issue of Confect magazine to print in Hamburg and we've come straight to the studio for this issue of Confect Corner to talk about some of the themes, drinking, dining, fashion and design, inspired by the new issue. I'm your host, Sophie Grove, and this is Confect Corner. Here we are for the second episode of Confect Corner. Each month, I'm joined by Julian Tobias and Confect Style Director Marcella Palik. Now, usually Julian is sitting across from me here in our London studio, but this week she's nipped over to Zurich to join Marcella instead. Welcome both. Hi, hello, Sophie. Hi, I'm missing you, Gillian. Oh, I know, but you, you just, you know, you feel so close because the Monocle family in Zurich and London are are connected. And how does it feel to have landed in the continent? Oh, to get on a plane, Sophie, was one of the most emotional experiences. <laughs> like literally, I, I did feel tears in my eyes as you know they're telling us to buckle up and and get ready for takeoff, and to see other people. And you know, I did have a week's quarantine which was fine it goes very quickly but then to be let out and hear the different sounds of the Zurich church bells and to look at the lake and to smell the mountain air that you have here was extraordinary everything's heightened all your senses are heightened so that's it's amazing it's almost worth it <laughs> it was yeah oh, totally worth it <laughs> now every episode we start by discussing something that's caught our eye or piqued our interest recently a sort of show and tell Marcella Perhaps you can start. Yeah, I just actually, um, I'm under impression of the latest uh, fashion shows, which took place uh, in all the cities we know in the past uh, few weeks. And um, I must say this was like a very special moment because it's the first time that all the fashion shows, shows were completely digital. Mm. So this is something that will be probably then in the history of fashion mentioned as a breakthrough moment. And I think something very, very special happened. And I think it's not only about like the brands and the designers showing their collections digitally in movies and films, but it was all about the shows. I mean, usually like press and people, buyers, all the fashion crowd is part of it, is mm. part of a fashion show. And now we were all at home. So it was like without uh, the second half of the, of, the, of the big thing. It's just very and strange to have no, none of that kind of theatre and suspense. And the, the idea of the spectacle is just so kind of embedded in, in this, the catwalk sort of concept. And suddenly it's no longer it's a, a very big leap for, for a lot of brands. Yeah. And they tried their best, actually, you know, we were getting here like invitations on thick cardboard, beautifully printed, with beautiful books and lookbooks and like with threads added like a little bottles of champagne and chocolates and cookies <laughs> and really beautiful. But all this was very, very nice, of course, but never could replace, of course, to being live at the fashion show. And you open such a sumptuous invitation. It says, click yeah. here. <laughs> yes. Do join yeah. us on Zoom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Gillian, 
you've been in quarantine, a little bit of a chance to catch up on some 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 culture well, on, on, the, on the small you know, screen. It's, it's really following up from Marcella because, you know, before my, my years at Monocle, I spent uh, a long time producing fashion television shows. So I would go to all the shows in Milan and New York and London, covering them for television. And actually, you know, although we, I love that connectivity, it does become a bit like Groundhog Day. So I quite like the fact, even if it's just for one year, that all the creators had to think differently. You know, they had to throw out the book of the show and just think, okay, let's pull our creativity to the max and let's become cinematic. So as a filmmaker, especially in quarantine when I had time to watch everything, I was just bowled over by the quality and the imagination and the inventiveness of the films. And hopefully we will go back to the communal theatre of shows. But I do think it's worth people taking time and just exploring and looking at, at at the film collections. And for me, one of the highlights I thought was Chanel because they really upped the ante on the, the cinematic elements and you really were taken to another space and it became very kind of emotive, partly because the editing was just so perfect and the shooting was so perfect. It was um, directed by the photographer team Inez and Vidou, so you can imagine the, the, the kind of photogenic eye that uh, they lent to the Chanel collection, but it's just... So evocative, it's wonderful. Now, I've been putting Confect 2 to bed, um, so it's been press week and rather heated, but it's it's wonderful because I've met so many amazing characters in the last couple of months just really to feature in the magazine. But one designer who I've been in touch with and it features in, in the issue, Talia Schmalenberg, is somebody that's really stayed with me. And she's this Berlin-based kind of multidisciplinary um, designer. But she's making weaves for glass out of um, wicker and then working with these amazing Swedish kind of glass studios, Bodo and so on. And I've just been talking to her on the phone and, and looking at her work and just understanding this amazing conceptual journey that she's been on. And it's something of an indulgence for somebody who's just editing, editing. And I've really struck up a friendship with her. She's just somebody I think is to watch in the design scene, but also just somebody who cares about craft a lot. So I'm just bombarded by <laughs> so much in the last week, but she really stands out for me. But when you when you speak to creatives like this, don't you sort of end up by thinking, oh, you know what, I'm going to turn my spare room into a workshop. I want to make something. You know, we're, we're, we're journalists, but actually I kind of long to actually make something, don't you Exactly. Think? Well, Talia Schmalenberg started off in lockdown just weaving... Um, with wicker when everyone else was making banana bread and things and then realised actually I'm going to try and do some sort of glass blowing and glass moulding with this slightly unlikely material which is completely the antithesis to molten glass and that's why it's such an interesting project but I think it is wonderful how people have just been in lockdown or had their cities kind of turned into this you know very sleepy environment but then have actually thought, no, this is a chance to do something different. And actually, that's one of the the things I've been... I've been speaking to people in Prague and in, in Hamburg, and since their cities have had no tourists... All of the kind of knickknacks that were on sale have been replaced by some really quite creative and progressive craft um, that's that's very much of the city. And in a way, it's been an opportunity for them to reset. Brilliant. Well, our first guest for today's edition of Confect Corner is Daphne Ezar, editor-in-chief of Regain and a contributing editor to Confect magazine. She's joining us today to take us on a journey to the French countryside. Hello, Daphne. Hello, Sophie. Hello. Well, you've written an enormous amount for this second issue of Confect, so thank you. And we've sent you to some wonderful, beautiful, beachy um, and wine-inspired <laughs> locations in the last couple of months. So um, we wanted to start by asking you about Pocahol, a beautiful, beautiful island on the Côte d'Azur, but just very, very remote feeling, like Robinson Crusoe vibes down there, and a vineyard which is now owned by the fashion house Chanel. Yes, I have to say it was a real privilege to be able to go on this island during this period, during this COVID, because we were locked down in France for a long time, and um, having the chance to escape on this amazing island was wonderful, especially because normally 
I've already been to, to Porcahol, but it was a different way to see it because uh, it was totally empty. There was no tourists. The nature was really amazing because it's just, the spring was arriving and we had the chance to hear the the birds and uh, see the, 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 the flowers coming out. And uh, it was really really wonderful because normally when you go there in the middle of summer it's like full of tourists and full of bicycles and dust everywhere even if it's still a wonderful island this time was particularly special. Daphne I loved reading the story because you just don't associate an island on the Côte d'Azur with winemaking. Can you tell us a little bit how did Chanel get to own a winery in the Porquerel? Okay, Chanel uh, is um, not only doing fashion, they also have um, some vineyards in Bordeaux normally. They have uh, three other vineyards in Bordeaux and they were looking for another vineyard somewhere. They, they were looking for something special. They were looking for a little jewel, not especially in south of France, not especially some rosé, but um, it happened that the, um, their CEO, uh, Nicolas, the bear is from Toulon, which is the main uh, town opposite uh, Porquerolles, just just on the other side of the island. There's Toulon, uh, so Nicolas de Bear managed to get to hear about this uh, vineyard and uh, and he started to work to get it. Also, originally this vineyard belonged to a um, local called Sébastien Lebert. Is part of the Lebert family. They literally own the island. Sébastien's grandfather bought the island to his uh, wife at the auction when the island uh, burned. It was in 1904, I think. And uh, since then, it's the, most of the island has always been in the hands of this family, the Lebert family. And one of the grandsons, Sébastien, has this vineyard, but he arrived at his um, 70s. And the children didn't want to take it over. So he wanted to sell it to someone who will really take care very well about it and not like just a very rich person who will want to have a a house by the beach and uh, change everything. So the Chanel family, uh, the Chanel house was probably the most appropriate big group to buy this um, wonderful vineyard. It's amazing, Porcarol. I've been there too a couple of times and you arrive by boat and it just is this feeling of escape and this feeling of remoteness. Uh, but also the kind of the nature there. I mean, you mentioned that it was bought at auction after it burned down, but as a wedding present, I think, or something. And, and um, the family have just been really strict on development. It's in, you know, it's a national park as well. And you just get the sense that it's it's been preserved and it's it's almost, it feels a bit nostalgic. It feels like you're going back in time. Yes, and the, the fact that the Chanel house uh, wanted to buy it, it was not to have another vineyard. It was more to be part of the development of the island and to look after the island and the biodiversity. They will, they will be very involved in the protection and in the heritage of this uh, island. It's not that they're going to organize a fashion show like next, uh, next month there. I hope so. It's just, they, 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 they are going to look after the biodiversity very well. It's exactly what they do for their métier d'art. They're buying vineyards not only to make wines and to sell it, but more to protect the, all the... Um, what what's going around you know there is a big work that is going to be done about the soil about uh, the the protection of uh, the flowers and the trees and Chanel is going to help a lot yeah I just wanted to ask uh, Daphne because it sounds so elegant and rich and I see this picture where can I drink this where can I try this this wonderful wine is it accessible for somebody from Switzerland <laughs> They are selling it everywhere on the island. Every time you go to the restaurant, you will have Domaine de Lille everywhere. Yeah, it's it's mainly rosé and white wine. I've seen the beautiful pictures and you, it's the gorgeous pale, pale color of rosé and, and white. What did it taste like? Does it taste different? Is there something about the island, do you think, that makes it distinctive? What, what, what did the wine taste like? It's different from the rosé we're we're used to drink together. <laughs> it's uh, you, can, you can feel you're on an island because 
the 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 soil is made of uh, schist. It's a it's a unique uh, material. Like the wind and the and the waves and the salt is stuck. You know. So I don't know exactly the the process, but uh, it it goes into the into the wine, and that's also what Chanel wanted to. To, to develop, it's, it's to make a lighter rosé because it was quite strong, and you can really feel the salt and the, you you feel like you're in Portugal when you drink it, even in Switzerland or in London. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really hope we can all raise a glass together very very soon, and thank you so much for joining us on Confect Corner. Now, from wine in the south of France, we head a little further east to the Austrian capital. Vienna's UNESCO-listed Spanish Riding School has been part of the city's heritage since the mid-16th century, but it took more than 450 years for women to be accepted into the fold. Those who now attend the Dressage Institution must devote their lives to the school's strict traditions and training regime as they learn to manage its magnificent white Lipizzaner stallions, one of the most prized horse breeds in the world. Alexei Korolev visited the world of horse ballet for Confect. At the Spanish Riding School, a sense of spectacle begins long before we enter the magnificent Baroque Riding Hall inside the Hofburg Palace. It happens every time the stallions are led out of their stables for training. As they walk across a narrow street with an easy stride, the traffic and passers-by stop in their tracks. But it's inside the hall that the spectacle begins in earnest. Now, in a normal year, the school has about 80 performances, and visitors can also see the morning practice, all down to classical music, by the likes of Johann Strauss, Mozart and Haydn. After all, another name for dressage is horse ballet. But behind this fanciful facade is a world of strict discipline, hierarchy and tradition. Du lebst für die Spanische, you live for the school, is the motto here. Mein Name ist Hanna Zeitelhofer, ich bin 33 Jahre alt und bin Bereiterin an der Spanischen Hofreiterin. In 2008, Hanna Zeitelhofer became the first woman to be accepted at the school since its foundation in the mid-16th century. There are now four. You must be physically strong, you must uphold traditions, and you must have discipline and respect. When you come here directly after school or university, it's a completely different world. You just can't go out and meet your friends as you please. There's also the matter of rank. Zeitlhofer is a Bereiterin, or full rider. So is Teresa Stefan. Two other women, Paula Behrens and Valentina Utz, are both Bereiter Anwärterinnen, or assistant riders. All of them hope one day to become Oberbereiterinnen, or chief riders, which has so far been the preserve of men. That's Sonia Klima, the school's managing director since 2019. She says the arrival of women was long overdue, but is now unstoppable. In fact, 80% of all applicants, she says, are now women. The starting age is normally between 15 and 20, and if you stick at it, you will stay at the school until you retire. Valentina Utz is the youngest of the four women. I was 16 when I enrolled. It was a massive decision, but I never regretted it, and I want to spend my entire life here. The concept of dressage dates back as far as ancient Greece, but it was only in the mid-1500s that it took off as a major art form. In time, a set of standard movements was developed, from a simple trot around the arena to some highly controlled jumps. Let's get back to Sonia Klima. She says, and rightly so, that the school is an important part of Austrian national heritage. 
but she admits it needs a modern touch to stay relevant. I find this combination of heritage and horses unique, and in the middle of the city too. But we need to change ourselves. We need to open up, so to speak, including to our fellow Austrians, who come here the least. With that in mind, Klima plans to make the premises more accessible to the general public. She's also in talks with the Ministry of Education to introduce a dedicated day when Austrian schoolchildren can visit the stables. Like many cultural institutions, the school survives almost entirely on ticket sales. And after an extremely difficult year, the riders and the horses look forward to performing once again. Thank you, Alexei. You're listening to Confect Corner. Coming up, we visit a Viennese-inspired bakery in Athens, meet one of Confect's photographers, and we're going dancing. But first, we're joined by one of the guests who has graced the pages of Confect magazine's second edition to dig a little deeper behind some of the key themes. Joining me from Berlin is Anahita Sadighi. A mover and shaker on Berlin's art scene, Anahita's galleries are brimming with intriguing antiques and exciting contemporary art. We talk about women in art, diversity, music and how Anahita has weathered the uncertainty of the past year. Anahita, hi, it's Sophie. Hi, Sophie. Hi. Well, great to speak to you. We're very thrilled to have you in the pages of Confect, second edition. And I wanted to start by asking, in the piece, we really get a sense of you and your your home and your hospitality, which is something people are kind of longing for at the moment. And I wonder, could you sort of sum up your take on the dinner party, entertaining at home. It feels like your flat is something of a sanctuary for people to come and sort of gather around the table and talk about life and art and politics. Thank you. Yeah, it was a it was a beautiful and gorgeous evening. Um, since you know we can't really host dinners um, at the moment, and I I really love to invite friends over and to throw big dinner parties. Um, it was exciting to meet Confect and to host the dinner at my place. You were born in Iran and your cooking is something of a kind of Persian feast. It's quite something. And, well, elaborate doesn't really cut it. You start cooking the day before. There's wonderful sense of sort of ingredients, but also flowers. It's a very powerful sensory experience, it feels like, coming to dinner at your house. <laughs> oh, yes. Actually, we just um, had the um, Persian New Year on the weekend uh, with the beginning of spring. Yeah, <laughs> Nowruz. Thank, Thank you. Yes, Nowruz. I thought it would be beautiful to have like a pre-Nowruz dinner party and to celebrate the Persian cuisine with all the palette and all the richness that it's about. Yeah, I was starting preparing the, the menu a day before um, going to the farmer's market and getting the fresh produce and uh, buying from my favorite uh, Persian supermarket and getting fresh flowers for the decoration. Yeah, I think it was uh, it was quite a feast. I mean, it's interesting. I've lived in the Middle East and there's a, definitely a sense of abundance at any sort of party. It's the style of entertaining is is quite different in its philosophy. Yeah, that's quite true. I, I guess there is some magic in um, Middle Eastern or um, specifically in Persian hospitality. <laughs> I'm definitely a big fan of it. And I think there is a lot of meaning and sense in um, cultivating hospitality and, and coming together. And um, I think we all really um, realize what difference it makes if we're not able to um, together and to share our sense of hospitality. Yeah, having people over I mean, it's interesting you say that because the piece um, written by Kimberly Bradley talks about how your your house is really a centre for debate, but also it's a bit of a nexus for the Berlin art scene in many ways and just what's talked about over the table, but also in your gallery spaces. You've got three and you host a lot of poetry nights and just wonderful sort of get-togethers for these ideas to cross-fertilise. We're really feeling it. Also in London and Zurich, the sense of a kind of a prohibition feeling. There isn't the same expression 
And I wondered how that is manifesting in, in Berlin. What's your take on that? Oh, this is a very um, good observation. Private homes and places that are very much connected to the work that you do, um, the people you have over, the people you collaborate with, they definitely impact the, the spaces um, that you work and live. And I think it's important to have this very personal and this very yeah, this very round-up interaction at different spheres that bring together the different ingredients of your work, whether it's um, art and um, artifacts that I'm dealing with or contemporary artists or poetry nights. Um, so we do often meet at my places to actually, um, you know, plan and to prepare all the work. And now I feel like my home has turned, you know, to a station where I communicate um, through my computer with the curators that are going to plan the exhibitions um, at the gallery for the next term, etc. And it's interesting how people from different places are coming together in your living room through Zoom to, um, yeah, to make things happen. And it's quite challenging, but I really look forward to um, getting back to live interactions and live performances. How do you think that the Berlin culture scene has fared in the past year? I mean, it's been unimaginably challenging for so many people. I wondered whether there is a resilience in Berlin as a city, its history, it's got an incredible ecosystem. Is there a sense of solidarity amongst creative people and artists? Oh, I think there is a huge sense of solidarity amongst artists. I think not only in Berlin, but in Europe and worldwide. I think a lot of people were looking to Berlin and to the sense of very pragmatic support and solutions to really foster and to really support the creative industry. Um, I mean, we were uh, witnessing this last year in spring, like around the same time, there was a huge sense for support. And I think a lot of people are coming up with new and innovative approaches to create new concepts around the art market, um, whether it's bringing people into different formats and to really developing new formats that bring the digital and the analog sphere together. Since a lot of creatives and artists are living in Berlin, there is a lot of discourse happening around the current challenges, particularly for the for the art industry and the, um, and the cultural activities in this very important place for art and, and culture, uh, I, I would say worldwide. And I wondered, I mean, it's wonderful to dream and plan. It's spring. I feel like even though there are some significant sort of restrictions coming your way, I feel like it's time to kind of plan. And I wondered what, what is in store for you? I mean, is there an opportunity to kind of reset, in a way, the art scene in Berlin and reinvigorate some of what's come before? So I, I wondered, you know, when you can get together for one of these wonderful Arabic or Persian poetry nights, what's it going to look like and what's the mood going to be like? I mean, to be honest with you, like, we can't wait to get out there and to um, to perform and to interact with people. I feel like spring is a beautiful, beautiful um, moment to start a new chapter. Uh, last year, around the same time, I was starting my new business with three colleagues, uh, Studio 4 Berlin. And um, just now we're actually um, presenting an interior show, which is quite a new thing in the art scene. So you know, since we've all spent, have been spending so much time at home and realizing how important our home, our sanctuary um, is, the role art holds in, a, in an interior might become more important in the interaction with art and in the gallery scene. And I would love to curate more exhibitions around this home theme and home interior slash art chapter that I just embarked on with Studio 4 Berlin. So this is something I'm really looking forward to and also to host a Persian poetry night at the gallery, certainly. Well, it sounds like just what everyone needs at the moment. Anahita, thank you so much for joining me on Confect Corner. Edelweiss is Switzerland's leading premium leisure carrier with an impressive food portfolio to match. So whether you're missing those Mykonos skies or Ibiza nights, why not head there via Zurich? You'll receive the warmest of welcomes and an impeccable in-flight experience. 
Discover your dream destination. Whether you're gearing up for the Greek islands or mulling the Maldives, craving a hit of Havana or longing for Cancun. Head to flyedelweiss.com for direct flights from Zurich to over 70 destinations, including more than 30 around the Mediterranean. With Edelweiss, you'll discover the most beautiful side of every destination. Next week, we're releasing the second issue of Confect. Martella, what can our readers expect from issue two? I think incredibly rich amount of beautiful, beautiful, colourful stories. I think it's really, you, you can feel spring and early summer in these magazines. From my point of view, it's full of lemons, yellow lemons, which are in all the magazine and, and beautiful shoots. If you are looking at the fashion shoots, we made it possible to visit uh, Depot Nilufar, which is like the warehouse of the Nilufar Gallery from Via Spiga. Most people will know it from there because Via Spiga is all the shops are there. So Depot Nilufar is more kind of warehouse with an incredible amount of beautiful, unique furnitures. So Nina Yashar, the owner and furniture collector, she's uh, dealing with 20th century vintage and new furniture, and you will discover pieces you never saw before. It's really an amazing place, and we made it possible that we could shoot in there. It's a fashion shoot in Nilofer, new which was shoot. Um, really quite an amazing combination of these beautiful pieces often by designers like Lina Bobardi or beautiful 20th century and often female designers and then great looks for spring at the same time. It's quite an unusual combination. You talk about spring I think now more than any other year we're all just longing for spring and summer and I wonder you know how you are reflecting the season and our desire for the season in the fashion choices and how you brief the photographers. Probably the most important thing, it's about an easy laid-back elegance, which goes through all the fashion stories we have. We have like two completely different stories. The one we are going with Daphne Ezar, we are going to the one of the most famous fruit, vegetable and flower markets in south of France, which is alone very, very colorful, but with the colorful clothes in it, it's really, you have just feel about dressing with colours. It's the mood of the moment. There's a beautiful um, atmosphere in that shoot as well. It's really full of like frenetic, wonderful market life and then these very exquisite looks as well, but very practical, wearable and kind of just for every day as well. Yes, I think this is a very important moment that you can wear the clothes because, of course, we have, like last fashion shows showed, very creative, beautiful couture-like dresses, but this is kind of, of um, yeah, nice pictures, but we want to wear it. We want to wear it every day, starting at a early sunny morning when you're going shopping for bread or like buying a baguette and, and some nice fruit. So I will wear this fashion. I want to wear this fashion from early morning until like the last glass of rosé in a bar. I love the idea outside. of colour because we're all going to feel like we want to be peacocks. We've been in the home far too long so our streets and sidewalks are going to be our runway so I think we're going to want clothes that make us feel wonderful and we're going to get excited by you know walking the streets in our, our new styles and our new colours. Yeah, well I'm definitely ready to um, join you <laughs> in a market in Gillian as soon as they open oh, here. Field trip, Sophie, field trip. <laughs> well one of the stories in the new issue is about Vicente Todole, former director of Tate Modern and now overseer of another collection, this time citrus fruits. Todole now runs his family estate of Valencia that is home to over 400 species of rare citrus fruits. The Todole Citrus Fondazio doesn't just grow fruit trees, it's also a research facility for the horticultural, medicinal and gastronomical effects of these plants. To capture these vivid groves and their zestful owner, we sent Barcelona-based photographer Iris Hume to Tudoli's estate, and she tells us how she brought the story to life on the page. My name's Iris Hume. I am a Swiss, half Swiss, half French photographer. 
based in Barcelona, Spain. I got into photography quite early, well early, I guess. I was, I must have been 14 or 15, and it's the classic story. I, I picked up one of my dad's old cameras, which I then found out was broken after I, I'd shot a lot of pictures on it. And uh, despite it being broken, the pictures kind of came out, you know, there was light leaks, and it, I, I found it all really interesting, and I really enjoyed the process of, of taking pictures, and it made me really happy. And so I almost haven't stopped stopped um, ever since. My style of photography, I mean I would like it to be seen as being quite intimate and quite warm and have a certain kind of emotional quality to it. I, I hope that whoever will see this picture will kind of imagine themselves in that same setting. So, so I kind of try and communicate this quality of some, some kind of emotion and, and a certain quality of light that you could see in, in a scene and so I always try to kind of capture that. What I really like about editorial photography is the opportunity that I get to be able to be with someone in their space and kind of get to know someone and, and have some kind of, or try to establish some kind of connection, some kind of emotional connection and that's what I always like to try and convey in my pictures is yeah like a visual representation of of the time that I've had there with this particular person. I had about three four hours a little less maybe with Vicente. I arrived and I was kind of taken to the to the groves and and left for about an hour because we'd uh, arranged to meet with Vicente later which was quite helpful and quite nice because I was on my own. I was giving a, a very quick tour and then the workers left for lunch because I arrived at around lunchtime. And um, it was very nice to be kind of left alone in this big space and being able to explore and, and kind of find some interesting corners, getting a, an idea of, of, of what the space looks like. And, and then um, after that, getting to meet Vicente and kind of already knowing uh, knowing the space. So knowing where I was going to photograph him and where, where the light looked interesting. And so it was, it, was, it was quite ideal actually, yeah. Vicente came across as a very charismatic, very, uh, very interesting man, very passionate about his job and about what he does. And so I really wanted that to kind of come across in the photographs. He really loves his lemons, his grapefruits. You can really tell. And, and, I, and I thought that that would be a nice thing to, to try and, and capture. It's interesting because it's kind of like, it's almost like dancing. It's like a, a dance that you have with the other person. He came down and we, we kind of introduced each other and we talked for a while. It was interesting because he, he works in Milan often where I grew up and so he instantly started speaking Italian. And so we, we got to know each other a little bit and I try to be as, as the least invasive I can be, trying to kind of invite situations, perhaps kind of telling him, let's go and have a look at this or, but he was very much kind of leading the, the, the pictures and it was great because he had a, yeah, he had a table full of lemons kind of prepared and was picking them up and showing me and he, you could tell he was really, really passionate and he was explaining everything, telling me to try things, kind of showing me things and so it was all quite natural it wasn't didn't feel forced or didn't feel at all staged I just sometimes had to tell him oh can you do that again real quickly but most things he kind of came up himself and so that was quite um, quite fun quite nice the favorite photo in the story would probably be the portrait of Vicente holding this uh, fruit and looking into camera and I think you can really tell how much he, he loves what he does and how much he, he just looks really at ease and, and you really feel like you're in his home and he's showing you around his bi really big garden. So yeah, that would be my favourite picture. That was the photographer Iris Hum and you can see her photographs of Vicente Todoli in issue two of Confect. 
let's now head to Athens where a former medical student turned pastry chef and a journalist passionate about baking have partnered up to open a new inner city bakery, Cora, specialising in sourdough bread and Viennese pastries. Despite the founder's self-confessed love of Greek baking and ingredients, Cora is redefining the stereotypical Greek bakery. Think a little more caramelised apple Danish and a little less spanakopita. Our reporter Daphne Carnesis went along to Cora to meet the people behind the bakery that's got Athens queuing and sample a pastry or two herself. My name is Maria Alafuzu and we are at Cora Bakery in Athens. We're standing outside on a sunny day in March. Uh, you can see bread, first of all, which is what uh, Cora is all about, a sourdough bread. Right now we have our rye, our oat, and our wheat bread. Our rye and our, and our wheat bread Maria are... opened Cora at the end of 2020 with her business partner, Ianthi Michalagi, the first bakery in the Greek capital solely dedicated to the art of sourdough bread and viennoiserie. Of course, baking is nothing new in Greece, and there are plenty of time-honored bakeries cooking up everything from kuluri, a typical round sesame bread, to spanakopitas, a type of spinach pie. But kora, which means crust in Greek, has brought something fresh to the capital's bread and pastry scene, and on weekends, the queues reach around the block. I head to downtown Athens to meet Maria and Yanthi and have a browse. These products, the... The Danishes will change seasonally, so we're actually about to change them. There's going to be red fruit involved. Yancy was talking about peanut butter and jelly. And then a goat's cheese and tomato combo for the uh, vegetable Danish. You get the idea. Recipes like these are inspired in part by co-founder and head baker Ianthi, who spent time working in Copenhagen at former restaurant 108, the Michelin-starred sister restaurant of Noma. What is it with that girl? I was in Copenhagen for almost three years. That's where I actually got into baking and I loved it. I started thinking about opening something of my own, but the competition was incredible in Copenhagen. So I thought the timing was right to move back and possibly do something like that here. But how easy has it been to do things differently in a culture that already has a rich history in baking? I ask Yanthi what challenges come with transferring skills, knowledge and recipes from a Nordic culture to a Mediterranean one. I've been away for a long time and everything, all the products that I was used to, all the food that I was used to eating, was something new here. And I still find it very challenging carrying that in a way that doesn't seem pretentious or like we're trying to educate people or force something down their throats. Working for a Greek audience was very challenging in the beginning. It's a different mentality, a different climate. People are used to different products. And in the beginning, I felt as if we didn't speak the same language. I know it sounds silly, but we were trying to build our vocabulary in Greek. So many of the terms we use and our products we don't know. There is no terminology in Greek. We're having a really hard time coming up with a Greek name for our product, something that someone would read it and instantly understand what we're talking about. And the hardest was a Danish. We struggled with that. We also struggled with not educating people, but getting people familiar with our bread, our ki- the kind of bread that we make. Why is it different? Why is it better? Why is it healthier? Maria adds that a big part of their ethos from the start was quality over quantity, which means they sell out relatively early in the day, a contrast to the abundance of traditional Greek bakeries and something that hasn't come without its challenges. The biggest thing for us in the beginning and still is, is the quantity of items that we make. There's a misconception perhaps that we're not making a lot of products because we sell out or because when you come at two or one, you we're not going to see all of our products on display and there's been a lot of pressure to make more make more so i think that that was communicating that was was a challenge and it it still is the greek bakery is is sort of this plethora of goods right it's like stacks of crackers and cookies and non-stop and i think that business wise as well sometimes in greece we have this tendency to 
you know, you're out of product, make more for the customer, make more, make more. And this response of simply making and selling more is sort of an instinctive response, but it doesn't always make sense. Cora sits just off the shopping district of Kolonaiki in downtown Athens, tucked away in a quieter residential area, avoiding the hustle and bustle of the busy main road. This was a kind of a, a bit of an abandoned space that we found that had been empty for many years, had the square meters that we required, and uh, it was sort of an empty shell that we turned into a bakery. This empty shell is now an impressive, renovated industrial space of white and yellow tiles designed by local architects en route. The space is designed for someone to, a customer to come up to get a look at everything, to be able to look into the production space because that's one of the most unique parts of Cora is that you can see everything that is made in this bakery is made right behind that yellow curtain. Whenever a delivery driver comes and he's like, oh, am I going to see it? Like, yeah, you're going to see it. It's this really loud egg yolk color, so, and it's joyful. Despite having no indoor public space yet, there's still a sense of community. Yeah, Cora is a community. I think we designed the business and we were talking about, that. you know, when we were laying out the foundations of this business, it was with the intention of making it a community, a place where people can come together and have good bread. And I really like that our community is diverse because today I was looking out the window, we have an older gentleman who's, I mean, in his, in his 70s or 80s, always perfectly dressed, and he's one of our regulars. And then so is this priest, and they're standing out there talking to each other. And I just thought about this, this phone call, this nasty phone call oh, that we yes, had the other day, accusing us yes. of being hipsters because we didn't make enough bread for this uh, holiday that we just recently had, the Clean Monday. And I just thought, well, this is not hipster. You know, we're, we're open to everyone and anyone who wants to come. And our regulars are actually a lot of older people who live in the neighborhood. Training a young generation of bakers at Cora has been tough but it's an essential part of Cora's recipe and vision. Our staff is very excited, they're very eager to learn something new, but no one has had experience with bread, with sourdough bread or viennoiserie. So it's very interesting to see everything through their perspective as well. For Cora to be the starting point from which other bakers will go and open their own bakeries, we really hope that in a few years we'll be able to look back and say, oh, so-and-so has now opened that, so-and-so has now opened that, and then from there to kind of grow more good quality bakeries. That was Daphne Carnesis reporting from Athens. We'll end each episode of Confect Corner with a final thought. And this month we turn to French-Moroccan journalist and author Marie Leconte. Usually a sharp voice on politics, today Marie is turning to something altogether softer and something we might have missed rather a lot in the past year, the power of dance. Writing about music is like dancing about architecture, someone once said. Who? It's unclear. It could have been Frank Zappa, Elvis Costello or heaven knows who else. That isn't the point. The quote now has a life of its own. Crucially, it is quite wrong. Writing about music is hard, but writing about dancing is harder. Maybe it is because dancing, in its purest form, is impossible to describe. For a start, it is an act built on contradictions. Some of the best dancing one can do is the sort that makes you close your eyes and forget the people around you. Yet the source of its joy comes from that very crowd. It is possible to dance alone or with a handful of friends in the living room, but it isn't quite the same. It's enjoyable, but not quite as freeing. Just like people can feel lonelier while unhappily married than contentedly single, sometimes one needs a crowd to really be alone. This is why dance like nobody's watching doesn't quite work as a mantra. In an ideal scenario, one should acknowledge the reality of the audience, but their desire to dance should override any fear they may have. After all, that conflict is what makes the act so enjoyable. Everyone goes out to dance for their own reason, to try and bring someone home, mark the end of a gruelling week, yet everyone is in the same place listening to the same songs. Don't judge someone until you've jived a mild in their shoes. There's also joy in seeing how others dance, be that strangers or acquaintances. Class clowns are amusing, in the same way that shy shoegazers are endearing, and sensual extroverts titillating. The entire spectrum of human behaviours can be witnessed on a dance floor, if you look hard enough. Oh, 
And there's joy on the dance floor. Joy like you don't often see anywhere else. Sharp bursts of joy, joy seeping from every pore. There's the sheer delight of bumping into the friends you thought you'd lost in a dark corner. Possibly forever. There's overwhelming glee in running back inside from the smoking area when you hear the first notes of a song you love. There's drama too. Despair at the DJ playing song after song after song that you dislike. Fury at those invading your space. Sorrow at the realisation the night is coming to an end. In short, dancing is a difficult thing to write about because going out dancing is everything and nothing at all. Maybe it's for the best. After the years we've had, we probably deserve to let our feet do the talking. Gillian Martella, are you yearning for a twirl on the dance floor? I certainly am. Yes, a lot. <laughs> dancing for me means music who is transferred to the body. And actually, I don't know if you know the moment, but if I don't like the music, then I rest a piece of wood. Can't move, can't <laughs> dance. And so I'm so dependent on the music. But if some music is really good, I can't hold and start dancing. It's really, for me, it's like almost the same. Dancing is the music. I mean, I loved uh, Marie's piece about how, do you know what, it's really about being back in that pulsating, heady atmosphere of bodies dancing together. And I, you know, I totally agree. And yet, do you know what? When you're in quarantine, when I was last week, it's incredibly cathartic to turn on your little music and dance on your own. And so I had a tiny little balcony here in Zurich and I didn't care that it was very un-Swiss. I danced on my balcony by myself and it was extraordinary, liberating and exhilarating. Wow. Well, what an image. And <laughs> I'm glad that Zurich was treated to such a spectacle. <laughs> but I do think she touches on something that is is very powerful. Like there really is an alchemy and a kind of intangible sort of value to society that people can express themselves dancing together and we miss that and it's quite an interesting thing to acknowledge that we do miss that and we do need that um, so that when we can get shaking it again we do it in in the same spirit um, Gillian you know that you said <laughs> at the beginning of the show really heightened really in a way, kind of with fr f a kind of fresh energy because it hasn't been allowed. And it's, that's why so many people in this issue, and, and it's just a, in, in general, are talking about the kind of roaring 20s and this pent-up energy <laughs> that you can sort of feel the sense of longing in, in certainly Marie's piece that we all have to, to kind of do something dynamic and expressive and artistic again and just wait for that moment when it's <laughs> when we're dead, we're all together um, sort of shaking it down uh. <laughs> well thanks to Gillian Tobias and Marcella Palak for keeping me company you can buy Confect from all good newsstands and confectmagazine.com while you're on our website why not sign up to our weekly newsletter Confect Compact for interviews fashion tips wine recommendations and recipes Confect Corner was produced by Holly Fisher, Carlotta Ribello and Paige Reynolds. We'll be back next month with more, but until then, from me, Sophie Grove, goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>